All right. Well, turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 25 and 26. Now, we have been studying through the book of Job, and uh, uh, you have caught on, I'm sure, to the fact that there is an element of the cycle of these speeches that gets a little bit redundant, right? There's a little bit of Job's comforters, his friends, coming around him and letting him know that he is a sinner and needs to repent. They have a closed system, and it's very clear to them what is happening. Job, these things don't happen to good people. Something is not right with you. And if you would at least confess it, if you would tell us your secret sin, if you would confess it to the Lord and repent, perhaps the Lord would give you some relief before you die. That is really the final kind of uh, um, culmination of uh, the dialogue between uh, Job and his friends. But let me give you kind of an overview because we've been in this for a while so that we remember everything that has taken place. I don't need to really uh, give you the blow-by-blow of the downfall of Job. He loses all of his property. He loses all of his children, right? He loses um, his esteem, his his status, uh, his comforts in life, and then he loses his health. He is abandoned. His life is fading. He is sitting outside the city away from people in case whatever he has is contagious. And he is, sit- he is sitting and just waiting to die. His three friends have arrived and we could call them friends or comforters. And they come and they sit with him for, for several days just to mo- mourn with him and to hurt with him. And they comfort him at least in their presence. And then they begin to speak. And they enter into uh, several cycles of speeches. Eliphaz first, then Bildad, then Zophar, right? Probably Otis, right? Next Otis, and then the youngest. And then interestingly enough, it, it increases in terms of intensity or potentially volume, right? Eliphaz seems to be the most comforting. And then Bildad just likes to tell it like it is. Talk about nature and how nature reveals who God is and you have issues. And then Zophar just likes to say, you are about to go to hell and you should fix yourself before you get there. So it is just this increasing intensity and they've gone through one cycle where Bildad has spoken, I mean, sorry, Eliphaz has spoken, Job has responded. Bildad has spoken, Job has responded. Zophar has spoken, Job has responded. Then cycle two, they repeat that process. Now this is the third cycle, this is the final cycle and in it, Eliphaz has just spoken. We saw that last week. And Job has responded. Now Bildad the second will speak and Job will respond. Zophar will not respond in the third cycle at all. So this is really the end of our three cycles of the comforters interacting with Job. The, the cycles are coming to an end. And each cycle we said began, uh, each cycle increased in terms of its intensity and it's pointing the fingers towards Job. It began with Job, you need to, maybe you should search yourself for the cause of this suffering because nothing is random. And they're reminding Job that uh, repentance could bring back God's favor. Favor, And then later, it's, it's implying that he has some hidden guilt and that there's a reason that God is doing this. God punishes sin and sinners, and perhaps you need to figure out what hidden guilt you're hiding. And then to the full open accusation and call of stupidity, Job, quit making up false wisdom, right? 
God is punishing your secret sins and you can't trick God's absolute knowledge or dodge his, his righteous judgment. So Bildad, his last speech is the last speech of the comforters. And chapter 25 is that. Chapter 26, as we'll look at, is Job's response. And it'll be his last response to all of the comforters. And so really we're looking at the, the last couple of things. Bildad versus Job, right? And, um, and interestingly enough, this final word from Bildad is surprisingly short and focused on God's greatness and human worthlessness. And Job will respond similarly in, in the comfort's worthlessness, right? And the limitlessness of God. I'm not sure why that's so small. Is that supposed to be that way? I might have done something wrong in the slides. I apologize. So if you guys are squinting, it says Bildad, greatness versus unworthiness. And then it says Job, worthless Worthless versus limitless. Okay, now yeah, here you go. So let me read to you our portion of scripture, which it, for the book of Job is fairly short, right? And then we will come back and unpack the, both the argument and the discussion of who God is and who people are. Chapter 25 in the book of Job. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? Then Job answered and said, how you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. With whose help have you uttered words? And whose breath has come out from you? The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God. And Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your scriptures as we continue in our time of worship, would you draw our attention and our hearts to you? Father, we would confess openly that uh, perhaps even in this moment we are distracted by so many things that are focused upon ourselves. And some of these may be serious. Maybe we are struggling with serious health issues or difficult relationships or, or just struggling with life as a whole. Perhaps we are consumed by certain pleasures or delights, certain leisures or activities that we're looking forward to. 
Perhaps we're bothered by things that are not happening in life as we hope that they would. Lord, help us to lay those aside and to see as Job sees in this moment of clarity the greatness and majesty of who God is. Father, as we look to this final dialogue that kind of encapsulates all the cycles of dialogues between Job's friends and Job, Lord, we recognize what we see. Accurate theology, but incomplete. An incomplete theology that has left some men with notions about God that ultimately are not accurate. And a man that is struggling with faith and with trust, but for, for short moments feels the rays of truth and the, and the joy of the greatness, the infinitude of God, and finds that to be a source of hope. Help us to recognize what is true, what is good, what is excellent, what is the greatness of our God, and how he stands for our salvation and grants mercy where mercy is not deserved. We thank you for the gospel, and we know this heads us to the things of Christ and ask that you would help us to think deeper and greater about God, about our undeserving, and about your grace in Christ for us. So we pray these things and ask for a blessing upon our time around the scriptures now. In Jesus' name, amen. John Calvin, in the beginning parts of his institutes, speaks of how the two most important questions we need to answer are the questions about who God is and what we are. A.W. Tozer, in kind of a similar way, says that uh, the most important thing about us in his theology, or his uh, knowledge of the holy, his attributes of God book, he begins by saying that the most important thing about us is what we think when we hear the word God. And what I love about both of those things is, is there is a notion of God, a theology, and there's a notion of us, an anthropology, and those things not just intermingle, but they are dependent upon each other, or rather, the second is dependent upon the first. And our theology, our understanding of God must be accurate, but it must be accurate in such a way that it explains his dealings with us. Job's friends theologically informed. They know the vocabulary. They walk through the talk. They kind of get who God is and his greatness and his righteousness and his holiness. And much of what they say is not false at all, is accurate. It's just a little incomplete. And we'll see that glaringly in the statement of Bildad. We do need to recognize and appreciate that as we approach Bildad's final, um, final words, what he usually begins... Wait, what's happening right now? Oh. I guess our slides aren't quite what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be just the greatness of God. But nevertheless, right? Bildad... He speaks of God's greatness and then the unworthiness of man. And as he begins with God's greatness, we should appreciate something. Usually in this previous two cycles, Bildad begins with insults and irony. He usually starts with, Job, you ignorant fool, or something to that effect, right? 
You knucklehead, right? If you knew better, right, then you would listen to some wisdom that's coming from us. That's usually how he begins. But here, there is no insults. There is no irony. Perhaps we should take from this, and the fact that Zophar won't even add anything more to this discussion, that they've kind of come to the end of everything that they could possibly say. And so this might be something of a summary statement on Bildad's part. It is only a few verses long, six verses long, the shortest of all the speeches. And thankfully, and we should appreciate that it begins with God. It begins with God. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, verse 2, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. The word dominion means that there is ruling power. And when he says fear, he means that there is awe and wonder. And so he's saying, when it comes to who God is, there is both this ruling power and this awesomeness that makes all his creation shrink. He makes peace in his high heaven, is the second part of verse 2. And that suggests that with all of God's power, he makes shalom, peace. It doesn't just mean that there is a ceasing of violence or, or hostilities. It means that there is order. There is wholeness. Everything is in its place. He is claiming that God has ruling power and he is so great and awesome and to be feared that in the heavenly places, everything has its place. Everything is as it should be. Everything is whole and peaceful and done. This is because of God's greatness, because of his awesome power. Then verse 3, he says, Is there any number to his armies upon whom does his light not arise? As an accentuation of God's power, he says, Is there any end to his armies? Meaning, can you number them? And the answer is no. You know, in the Old Testament, often you hear the phrase, The Lord of hosts, right? And I don't know about you, but especially as a young believer, I just thought that meant... God is like the God that kind of shows up with the platter of hors d'oeuvres. Like, hey, would you, would you like some hors d'oeuvres, you know? He's the spiritual hors d'oeuvre serving God, right? The, the, it sounds like he's just kind of being nice to you. He's a host to you, and that's not what that word means. Host means basically the host of, of your armies. It, it means it is your gathered power, right? It refers to uh, the fact that you have at your, at your whim and disposal entire groups, legions of, of angelic beings. And his whole point, is there, any, is, there any, is there any way to number the extent of his armies? He is the Lord of hosts. And it's a declaration that he is so powerful that there is none who can stand against him. His power is limitless. His armies are limitless. And he says, and how far does his glory, his power radiate? Second part of verse 3, upon whom does his light not arise? Remember the old statement, right, during the empirical reign of, of England, right? They used to say that the sun never sets on England. You know, what they meant by that was they colonized everywhere. And so as the, you know, as the sun comes up, somewhere, you know, the sun is touching a territory that belonged to England. That, that, that's what they meant by that. And they probably got that notion from something like this, where, where Bildad is proclaiming, and truthfully so, that is there a place, is there something in the universe upon which God's glorious light does not shine? 
Bildad's the naturalist, meaning that he always kind of speaks of nature and God's glory displayed in nature. And as his kind of concluding remarks about the greatness of God, he, he wants to emphasize this is how powerful God is. This is how great he is. This is how endless he is. And these things are true. Now, just because his theology is wrong at, at major points, it is incomplete. doesn't mean that his theology is all wrong or that any theological statement that the friends make is off. Much of what they say is accurate. It's just not full. Psalm 19, 1 through 6, says a similar statement about the revelation of God and his glory um, in the natural world. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, meaning every day that comes out, pours out speech. It's like it's speaking to us. And night reveals knowledge. It's like it's instructing us. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set the tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. You get what Bildad is trying to say? He's trying to say what the psalmist was saying. That if you look at the natural world and God's creation, God has no rivals. No one that could threaten him. He can't be resisted. Therefore, there is no such thing as injustice on earth or in heaven. Not long. See, so he sees that and interprets that as his closed system. The wicked must be punished and the righteous are always honored. Closed, done, simple, and tidy. Job, it's one thing if something bad happens to you for a moment. You stub your toe, right? You slip and you fall down. You know, you have a bad hair day. Things can happen. But things like this, where God has allowed your children to be killed, where God has taken away all of your property, where you've lost all status and even your health is failing, where you're lingering to life in the most terrible and pitiful way, this doesn't just happen. There's a reason. And the reason, it lies with you. Because this is the greatness of our God. He has power. He's unstoppable. He sets everything in order and everything is in, in its place. And his glory, his glory extends to all of creation. Something simple and easy to digest, all right, is the kind of theology that Bildad is expounding. God keeps the universe in tidy order. See, this is reasonable. It's not outrageous, but it's incomplete. You see how incomplete it is when he gets to not just God, the question of the greatness of God, but the unworthiness of man, verses 4 through 6. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? Some strong statements. From the perfections of God to the imperfections of mankind. 
I have a feeling part of what Bildad is doing is this is a riff on what Job has already said in Job 15. Let me read you the words of Job in Job 15, 14 and 15. He says, Job says there, what is man that he can be pure or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones and the heavens are not pure in his sight. Right, so Job has already said that, and I think, I think Bildad is building off of that. He's agreeing to that. God is tremendously great, but human beings are terribly flawed. Right? As great as God is, humankind is unworthy of his glory. See, that's a theological truth, Right? That's just Romans 3, 23. All have sinned, talking about all of mankind has sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. That's just true. God is great. We are not. We are born, right? We are born sinners. You can present a case, right, that, uh, that God is so good and holy, and we are so miserable as mere men, that we don't have a right to say anything to God. And that's exactly Bildad's point. His point is, Job, you keep saying that you wish you could have an audience with God. What audience would help? You're a born sinner, and you're probably worse than some of us. Right? You've been ripping off the widow, taking advantage of, uh, uh, of the orphan, and so that's how you've gotten rich. You should just confess that instead of trying to pretend that you can actually speak to God and offer defense for your life. If you're born of a woman, and by the way, that's all of us, right? Um, that's not a weird cisgender thing. That's, you, know, you are. You're born of a woman. That's how God designed women. You, none of us here have been born of a man. Right? We're all born of a woman. And his whole point is all of humanity. Any human being that has been born and that lives is unworthy. I love what Bildad says in verses 5 and 6. Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. The old Jews, right? the Old Testament Jews, they thought of the, the sun as the brilliance, right? And they often equated that, like the sunlight, the sunbeam, etc., as kind of God's like direct glory, like it shined God's glory, right? Well, the moon and the stars were a reflection of that. They were the lesser light. They were the lesser glory, but nevertheless, they were still bright and significant. They helped at nighttime, right? When you didn't have streets that were paved and, and, and street lights that kind of lit your way. I mean, it was a delightful and wondrous thing that the, the moon cast um, a reflective light and the stars in the distance gave us these heavenly lights. There was good things. And Bildad is saying, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in God's eyes. In comparison to his glory, they are not glorious at all. Yet compared to humankind, so he's saying God is this, right? The moon and stars are this, and this is our humanity, verse 6. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? He's saying, listen, the moon's light is not bright like God. The stars are not pure as far as in comparison to God. So how much less are human beings? They're like maggots and worms, the lowliest, most vile creature that crawls along the face of the earth, right? Maggot is right. That's a good translation. And worms, because his emphasis is on those those nasty creatures 
creatures that eat that which is decaying and that speaks of death. The Old Testament often talks about how, you know, I will be put in the grave and I will share the bed of worms, meaning the worm's going to eat my flesh. I know that's nasty, right? But that, that's his point. It is, that's how less a human being is. He's saying how vile this human creature is. We are so beneath God. How can you demand an audience with him? He's too great. You are not just beneath him. You are a maggot and a worm. All of this, theologically accurate. But is it complete? Is their anthropology full? I think we can make a case that human beings are the most wretched of creatures because they rebel and choose to rebel openly and antagonistically against their very creator who has made them in his image. But at the same time, that last phrase, we are made in his image, means something to God and should mean something to us. Psalm 8 Three to five says this. It'll be familiar to you, but think about these words. Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him, talking about mankind, human men and women, you have made them a little lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned him with glory and honor. We often speak about how scripture talks about um, protecting the helpless. I'm tempted to always say protecting the innocent. But in a theologically accurate way, no human being is actually innocent, right? But they are helpless. Or they are powerless. Or they are, they are oppressed. Or they are... Their difficulty has fallen upon them. And when we look at such creatures, sinful as they are, maggot and worm as may truly be in comparison to the greatness and the glory of God, they have a dignity being made in God's image such that scripture proclaims every human being as being crowned with glory and honor. When we talk about the dignity of human life, we don't just mean that oh, they're kind of like us, so we should protect each other. No, we mean something deeper. We mean that God has created that human being, imperfect as they are, perhaps even with disabilities, with incapacities, nevertheless, image bearers, therefore, an extension of his glory in a way that no other creature can be. That's why when you see that other human being, as wretched as they are, realize that they are still God's image bearer. And they will potentially in eternity bear a light of glory that will, that will astound and create wonder in our beholding of them or they will become the worst and most horrific thing cast into judgment for all eternity. To encounter a human being to us is so common that we kind of treat people like they don't matter. It's the way that we treat, Right? The people that serve our tables. I have friends that I'm sometimes embarrassed to go to restaurants with because they kind of act like, hey, 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 can you get us some water over here? You know, it's that dude, right? And because I grew up doing some work in like the food industry, like serving people, like you really don't appreciate that because, dude, I'm a human being just like you're a human being. 
But scripture goes beyond that. The value of a human being is that God has made us in our image. And Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar have kind of lost sight of that, or perhaps they have never been fully informed of that, that every worthless maggot of a human being still is an image bearer. And that potentially God cares about that fool, that wicked individual, that worthless life, that unimportant, forgotten, and faded human existence. See, the question that always comes up in, in this entire dialogue in the book of Job is the question of, of, um, of who God is, who we are, and what is that connection? The thing that in the midst of suffering that is brought up again and again is, is God for us? Is he for us? And even as we study theology and the wonders of God and we think about how great God is, and he certainly is so far away from us, Right? that it's easy to ask, well, God is God. That, that's where he is. This is where we are. Is God for us? And I think scripture is abundantly clear that he is. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't say, okay, maggots, any one of these maggots trying to worship and bow down. Oh, I see a little worshiper guy right there. That's the person that Christ would die for. That's not the way that God did it, right? He sent Christ to pay the penalty of the sins of the worst among us while we were still sinners. It is the potential of human beings as they study God, men like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, to put God in a box that fits their notions, that fits Right? As great as they are exclaiming that God is, he still has to kind of fit in something that's a little more tidy. And they don't recognize the slow drift from God and God for us to just God separate and in a box and he only works this way. God is against us, says the legalist. Right, Because the legalist knows absolutely and convincedly, right? they know that God is righteous. So they need to tell others, right? their failures and how they must do better. I'm just trying to help you do better because there's a great God and he's not glad with you. There's this notion that God is against us. But, but for on those, if you swing that pendulum the other direction, then God is just for us. And we tend to think that God is for us in a way that is unhealthy. We're prone to think that God should be for us and for my life. Like as in he should make my life the way that I want my life to go. He should be for me winning. He should be for me to get my dreams come true. He should be for me, for us, to get married, to have kids, to be successful, to be able to provide, to be comfortable, to never get cancer, right? To be respected, to be honored, to be great. That's how God should be for me. It's like a Christian American dream. God should be for me so that I could live, live well. And both of those perspectives, whether God is against us, and I just got to tell you what's wrong with you, or God is for us and only for us, and Lord, keep, keep showering blessing. I don't know why this bad thing has happened, and I got a flat tire. This is the worst thing ever, and sinners should get flat tires, not me, Lord, right? Like, all of that is about us and not about God. Even while speaking about the glorious nature of who God is, 
These men have lost their way in terms of understanding our place before him. Yes, fear and awe, absolutely. That's what Bildad says. That's true. But glory, wonder, compassion, and love. That's also true. And this is where the struggle is happening. To understand the greatness of God and the unworthiness of man. That is a little, hopefully you could see that. That's a little hard for me to see. But Job responds in chapter 26. And his response is about the worthlessness of his counselors. And about the limitlessness of God. He begins with his counselors in verses 1 through 4. And can I say this, as one commentator points out, an interesting contrast between Job and his friends in the dialogues is that Job is so inconsistent. And this is what he means by that, right? Um, His counselors are pretty consistent. They start off by saying, hey, you know, um, we're so sorry for you, but is there something that's going on to, you know what, um... I'm beginning to suspect that something is not right with you. Job, you're a sinner. Why don't you confess? Like, they're pretty consistent in their theological grid, their framework, right? Job is not. On the one hand, Job is saying, I need a redeemer, and I know my redeemer lives. I know God is for me. And other times he's saying, I just want to die. God is not for me, right? Like, like he is exactly what we expect that a man of faith would look like in the midst of the worst trouble in his life. You know, I, I forgot to mention, and I should probably mention, that there's a couple of things that we should be reminded of constantly as we're reading through the book of Job, right? One is that only God's knowledge is absolute, and human knowledge is incomplete. None of the created beings mentioned in the book of Job know exactly how Job's life will end, right? Will he be faithful? Will he lose it? Will he curse God and die? No one knows except God, not Satan, not Job's wife, not Job's comforters, his friends, not even Job himself. It's only God that knows that Job, because God has declared him a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Only he knows that his faith will endure and in the end he will stand. See, so what that tells us is that every creature, their, their limited perspective causes them to be uncertain about what is to come, but not God. And on God's part, because he has everything in his sovereign control and everything in his mind, the thing you need to recognize is God has never abandoned Job. This is God's intention for Job's life at this moment. He's never left Job, even in the midst of such harrowing, brutal suffering. He's set a limit to the extent of Job's suffering as he has set a limit to the extent of his life. God literally has everything concerning Job in the palm of his hand. It's just that the creature doesn't know it or doesn't feel it. He's doing the best he can. And so Job is up and down. And in this moment, he's got some words about his worthless counselors. I'll speed through this section because I think you'll get the gist of it quickly enough. Chapter 26, verse 1 to 4, Job says, And then Job answered and said, How you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. Absolute sarcasm, right? To the degree that some scholars, some liberal scholars have thought, oh man, this is probably not Job. You know, this is probably supposed to be, you know, attached to Bildad. Bildad's thing is so short. Maybe we should remove verse one, kind of shuffle it all up. And then this is, this is Bildad kind of being all sarcastic, right? Um, 
I don't think so. I think this is accurate. And there's no need for us to reshuffle scripture or to, to edit it to what we think would fit better in terms of its flow. It literally says, Job is being sarcastic. It says, man, you have helped, right? The person without power. You have saved the arm that has no strength. Verse three, how you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. He is saying all this stuff, even though we know that Job has already affirmed that their counsel has been worthless. Sorry, counselors, are you all, Job has said. And in verse 4, he says, With whose help have you uttered words, and whose breath has come out from you? He's saying, Where is this inspiration that you have given such poor advice, that you have brought such lame comfort? Where is the source of your inspiration, right? He says, whose breath has come out from you? And I'll just, just say the word breath there has, is, uh, can be translated breath or, or spirit and is used of the animating power of life. Like in Genesis 2-7 when God creates Adam and breathes into him life, right? And Job himself in 33-4 says uh, that the breath of the Almighty has given me life. In the New Testament, right, our, our theology of the inspired word of God, that it is God-breathed, inspired, um, means that God's word is breathed out in a way that it is filled with life and power and energy and, uh, and is significant and not just mere words. The point that Job makes is that his counselors have been worthless, right? They've helped not, not at all. So where is Job's potential source of joy, of life, of hope. And it is an agreement. Job would say, I cast, right? I cast my agreement with one thing that you have said, and that's that God is absolutely great. So he speaks of the limitlessness of God in verses 5 to 14. And this is the part that I think we, we, need, to, we need to drink in. Job begins in verse Uh, verses uh, uh, 5 and 6 by talking about how God is sovereign even over death. He says, The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. And I know like, you know, initially that, that all of that just sounds like crazy. Like what in the world are we talking about? But the idea of Sheol is, is the realm of the dead. This is where you go when mortals die. Right? It's Hades or, or the grave. But the way they conceptualized it, it was so deep. It's the deepest that you could get in reality. So deep that it ran under the, the deep oceans and the seas. So when he says that the dead tremble, he's saying that there are these shadowy, ghostly figures, the Rephim. It's, it means not just that they're dead humans, but these dead souls, right? They tremble. They are under the water and all the water's inhabitants. So they are in verse 6, Sheol. So here is the great chasm of the ocean and all of its dwellings. And then underneath that, somewhere deeper, right? The deepest part of all creation is Sheol, the grave. And he's saying the dead there tremble because Sheol is naked before God. And Abaddon, there's a word that means destruction, so you could translate verse 6, really, death and destruction. I think some of our modern translations do that. That death and destruction are open and naked before God. In other words, just dying and being in, in Hades doesn't protect you from the vision of God. God is sovereign. He has dominion even over the death, right? Even over death. 
in the place of the shades, right? And, and shifting spirits, nothing is hidden from God and his power. See, the point is there is no God of the underworld. Satan isn't Lord of, of hell. God is Lord, period, of everything. No ruler has a sub-dominion under God. God's eyes are on it all. Even in the realm of the dead. And why is this important? Because we have discovered Job at this point in the dialogue speaking very finally about his own mortality. And he's convinced that he's going to die. And his whole point is God is sovereign. This is how limitless he is. Sovereign even over the dead and the realm of the dead. Even if I die, there's no real escape from God because God knows and he can terrify us even there. And verse 7 to 10, not only is he sovereign over death, he is Lord over creation. 7 to 10 is, is, is brilliant and interesting. It says he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. So stretches out suggests that he is about to, to make a tent, right? He's going to stretch out a dwelling place. And he's saying he stretches out the north over the void. So he's talking about God's creation and how it creates the world. And he just hangs it somewhere over the north, right? And he hangs the earth on nothing. That's literally what it says. So there is this sense in which the world is there floating and God has stretched out, right, the, the inhabitation or the tent, the dwelling place of the entire earth. And he's just hung it out there. He just stretches it out. North is a significant statement. He stretches out the north over the void. Because north in Hebrew is a zaphon and it refers to, um, to, you know, just compass direction north. But there is a Mount Zephon that is northward. And amongst the pagans, right, their mythologies claim that that was like Mount Olympus. That was the north, the, the dwelling place of the pagan gods. And, and I think scripture uses that to speak to the fact that God is actually the only God. There is no Mount Olympus nor any other mythical gods. Isaiah 14, probably the words of Satan himself, in verse 13, it says, you said in your own heart, this is what Satan was thinking, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Saphon. That's, that's where I'm going to be. That's where I'm going to establish myself. Right? And in that similar way, in the opposite direction, talking about Mount Zion, Psalm 48.2 says this, Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the Zaphon, the city of the great king. Now, just so that we're clear, right? Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, that's not that far north. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I think we're further north than those guys are, Right? So the idea is not geographically far north, but theologically, that it conquers and, and God trumps and steps on Mount, Zion, uh, Mount, Mount Olympus and all this concept of the gods coming from the north. He stretches the world over the north, right? He just does it. He owns it all. He is Lord over everything that is, that is created over any gods or concepts. Verse 8, he binds up the waters in his thick clouds. Isn't this beautiful? Like we think in the Old Testament, they thought the earth was flat. They're really dumb, right? They're running around and they're like, oh, we made fire, fire, right? We didn't, no, they kind of knew what the world was like already. They were intelligent. 
And he's saying that God binds up the waters in his thick clouds. They could see that it's clouds that drop precipitation. And so they recognize that there's water up there. And they don't know how that's possible. Water's heavier than air. Why is that happening? So he says the cloud is not spilt open under them. Meaning like, it's not like there's, they're just bowls, right? And there's water up there. And boom, they just bust open. This doesn't happen. It's like they sprinkle down water or it comes down harder sometimes. It does as God pleases and God has invented these things. He's Lord over them. Verse 9, he covers the face of the moon and spreads over it his cloud. Bildad had talked about the glory of the moon and he's saying God can cover that glory anytime he wants. He can make clouds cover it. He has, he has, right, he has control of how much light, even in the evening, that is given to us. Verse 10, He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters. Difficult thing to understand in terms of uh, what um, he is describing there. But probably he's saying that there is a curvature, a circle, a ring that that demonstrates or that, that shows us the limit of our vision, the boundary between light and darkness. And he's saying, I could see the horizons and God has placed the waters in such a way that we see to some limit in all of this. God has done. He has created all of it. The Lord is the Lord over all his his creation. He has formed it. He has established it. The seas, the earth, the heavens, all its limitations. He is Lord over it all. So he is not disagreeing with Bildad. He is saying amen and amen. God is Lord over everything that he has created. He goes further. He's the master of over the storms in verses 11 through 13. So not just those things that are foundational and and solid and good, but those things that are um, out of control as well. By definition, a storm is a violent disturbance to natural order and stability, right? That's literally what a storm is. I mean, it's a storm because you go outside and then kaboom, and you're like, ooh, right? It does, if it's always kaboom, kaboom, then you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, what's up? You know, you just go on with your day, right? It is a disturbance to what you would think would be natural peace and kind of orderly, um, um, you know, kind of stability. And so he says, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. He's probably speaking in terms of the pillars of heaven as mountain ranges. That's probably what he's talking about, right? Um, Think about the Rockies or maybe the Himalayas. They're like the guardians. They're huge. They're out there. And the pillars of heaven tremble. They're astounded if God rebukes them. They will shake, right? Right? I don't think that's weird to us. I think that's true in Scripture. And it's an example of how the master of creation is ultimate. And he could shake those things that are supposed to be super foundational, unmovable, right? Um, long-lasting. In verse 12, by his power, he stills the seas. So on the one hand, he could shake foundations that are supposed to be stable and still. On the other hand, he could still violent storms. He, by his power, he steals the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. And his hand pierced the fiercing serpent. Rahab is not just the name of, you know, the harlot that helped the spies of Israel. 
right, in the book of Exodus. Rahab is a reference to a great um, mythological sea creature. Um, its other name is Leviathan, and that, that phrase, the fleeing serpent, is usually associated with it. You know, it's called the fleeing serpent, or Leviathan is called the fleeing serpent, Isaiah 27.1. And here, Rahab is called the fleeing serpent. And the idea is that it represents everything that is, it is out of control, that rages against humanity, against God, and his created order. And it's saying that, it's not affirming that there's such a thing. It is simply saying that even our concepts of Moby Dick, or some, you know, or Mother Nature Gone Wild, or, or whatever, the tsunami, Right? God crushes it. He shatters it. He pierces it. He tames the storms because whatever is unstable, God could reestablish. He could destabilize foundations like mountains, and he can calm the raging storms. And his final point is this. And this is what I want us to take away. Is verse 14. His final note is that God is infinite. I love verse 14. Listen to what he says. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? He's saying this is just the outskirts. That word means that it's just the fringe edges. It, it is like you're coming up to, to something so massive that you're only seeing the edge of it. It, it is like Moses, right? Seeing the passing glory of God in Exodus 33. You can't handle the whole God. You could get a little piece of his glory, the fringe that is hanging off as he passes by. The point is, are you amazed by the grandeur of the Grand Canyon or the heights of, the, of Mount Everest or the wondrous beauty of planets or stars or solar systems or galaxies? Theologically speaking, you ain't seen nothing yet. That should be the Christian's perspective on the magnitude of our God. We have seen nothing. His power goes far beyond anything that Bildad could possibly exclaim. Job says, listen, if we get a whisper of him, how can we receive the full thunder? In other words, if it's difficult for you to drink through a straw, don't turn on the fire hydrant. Right? You can't handle that. Isaiah 55, 89 says the same. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen, we got to end here. But the point is that God is bigger than that tidy, boxed in, you must be doing something bad because God only does this stuff to bad people. God is so much bigger than simply, okay, he's really righteous, you're really wicked. He's so much bigger than he must be for me. That means that he's got to give me a really good and perfect life. I want health. I want to be beautiful. I want to be tall. I want, you know, these things in my life. I want everything to go as I have planned them. God, make that happen because you are God. You are all powerful and you are for me. He is God and we are not. And in, in Job's best moments, in the midst of his suffering, he remembers God's power and his greatness. And so that we remember the display of God's power in Scripture is really twofold. One, 
in his creation. And see, even, even Job and Bildad and all these men are speaking about that. The greatness of God displayed in his creation, right? The power of God displayed in creation. But the other way that God displays his power is in redemption. Remember in Romans 1, 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God. It is the power of God for salvation to all men. We are sinners. Bildad is correct. We don't, deserve, we, are, we don't deserve anything from our God. But God is merciful and compassionate. And I gotta tell you, I don't know why. It's not a singular, sudden decision on his part. It's just who he is. And so for sinners like you and I who don't deserve any help, but only deserve his righteous wrath, he has chosen to send his son to die in our place so that our sins might be placed on him. Our punishment might be placed on him so that he could declare us righteous without him himself becoming unrighteous or unjust for doing it. So he could grant to us a righteousness we don't deserve. Why? Because this powerful, limitless, infinite God is for us. And in the midst of Job's suffering, he remembers again that the evidence of God, his greatness, and his love, right? That he is for his creation. And that's why we worship him. Not because he's made a good deal with us, not because better than other options, because we are people made in his image and we get to worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this wonderful vision of who God is, of who you are, and pray that we would come away Lord, astounded at your greatness, believing that if we would meditate on your greatness, it would change the way that we would do everything, the the way that we would go to work, the way that we interact in our families, the way that we would uh, uh, design our future or hope for the things of this life. Lord, change and transform us because you are great and remind us that your greatness, the ultimate demonstration of your goodness and your power has been in sending your son to pay for our sins. We praise you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the hope that is settled in a God that is good and powerful. In Jesus' name we pray.